Welcome to this podcast series on evidence in women's health, brought to you by the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine and the Postgraduate Programme in Evidence-Based Healthcare. My name is Dr Anne-Marie Boylan and I'm a Senior Researcher and Lecturer in the Programme and together with Associate Professor Jamie Hartman-Boyce we'll be interviewing relevant experts, discussing the strengths and limitations of different sources of evidence as they relate to women's health and considering their implications for future research. This episode focuses on intrauterine contraception, commonly known as the COIL. In June 2021, two high-profile women in the UK, TV presenter Naga Manchetti and journalist and author Caitlin Moran shared their severely painful experiences of coil fitting. In an article in the Times, Caitlin Moran called for pain relief to be offered to all during coil fitting. She wrote, why is it presumed that women will be fine with having their cervix artificially dilated? We know that opening the cervix is infamously painful. It's legendary that when it happens naturally during birth, it tends to chafe a bit. This prompted Naga Manchetti to give a visceral account of her coil fitting done by her GP without any sedation or pain relief. She described screaming in agony so much so that her husband in the waiting room tried to find the room she was in to demand an end to the procedure. The nurse assisting had tears in her eyes. Naga fainted several times. She described her GP as great and professional and afterwards her GP told her that she also felt terrible about it. Naga concluded this wasn't about the coil but about how seriously we take women's pain. In response to this, doctors were quoted in the media sympathising with stories of coil fitting pain but caveating this with a statement that severe pain is rare, that the coil is a highly effective form of contraception and that women shouldn't be put off getting it by these types of stories. Given the uncertainty around who feels pain, I spoke to Dr. Neda Taghanajadi, a sexual and reproductive health doctor and academic clinical fellow who specialises in fitting coils for those who have had problems having them fitted by their GP or who have experienced trauma and require a highly trained specialist. First, I asked her to tell me about coils and about pain during fitting. Intrauterine contraception is a very medical term for what is often called a coil in UK language. So it's a method of contraception which sits inside the uterus and there are broadly speaking, two different types. Types that release hormones, uh, those are called hormonal coils, or types that don't have any hormones but work through the use of copper, and that's called a copper coil. They can be used for contraception, and they're both very effective methods of contraception, but there are lots of other reasons that people might use them, and that includes for things like heavy menstrual bleeding, for menopause, uh, so lots of different reasons why someone might choose to use intrauterine contraception. They are really safe, really effective methods. So the using intrauterine contraception in terms of avoiding pregnancy is as effective as, as uh, sterilization, actually. But as with any method of contraception, there are downsides to them, too. Thinking first about the copper coils, so the non-hormonal method of contraception, one of the main downsides is that it can make your periods heavier and more painful. And so obviously that makes it really unsuitable as a method for lots of people who already have heavy, painful periods. Thinking a little bit about the hormonal coil, for example, uh, what often we call the Mirena or the JDES. There are different hormonal side effects that people might experience with those methods, and those include things like mood changes, abnormal bleeding patterns, breast tenderness, and other hormonal side effects. So the procedure to have an intrauterine contraception or a coil fitted, most often on awake people, although you can have it done with a general anaesthetic or with sedation as well, is exactly the same whether it's a copper coil or whether it's a hormonal coil. And although 
as I said, it's a safe and common method and it is a safe and, and very commonly done procedure. There are some risks. So common risks include uh, experiencing pain, so the possibility of experiencing pain during the procedure. There's a small chance of infection. There's a small, very small chance, so um, around one in a thousand risk of what we call perforation, so accidentally making a hole in the wound when we fit the coil. And after the procedure, there's also a risk of the coil actually falling out. That's what we call expulsion. And that risk with any type of coil is around 5%. There is a huge range of normal experiences. Most people do not have severe pain, but equally, I wouldn't describe having severe pain as a rare event. So just to go into some of the research around this, um, to explain that in more detail, there are some different studies that have looked at this question. So in the UK, there was one study where over 100 women who had coils inserted were asked to rate their pain on a scale of 0 to 10. And in that study, 16% described their pain as being between 7 and 10, 16% experiencing more severe pain. In another paper based in Brazil, they found that 33% of women had pain between a level of 7 and 10. And it's really hard to compare different studies because there are differences in the medical and obstetric histories of these different populations. And researchers ask women about their pain in different ways. But overall, what we can say is there's a real range of normal experiences. It looks as though most women do not have severe pain. But equally, like I said, having severe pain is not a rare event. It's actually not possible to predict who will experience more severe pain or who will experience less pain. And just to add to that uncertainty as well, it's important to highlight that different parts of the coil procedure are painful for different people. So there are a few different stages to a coil procedure. We insert a speculum into the vagina to see the cervix. Then we put a clip on the cervix and then we measure the womb and fit the coil. And those last bits, those last stages are, are in the uterus inside the womb. And there's a huge range of, in the experiences of pain for each of those different stages. Given the uncertainty about pain during coil fitting, I then asked her about the types of pain relief that can be offered and invited her to discuss some of the key evidence around them. There are a few different methods of pain relief that are available and that have been studied to look into how they help with those different stages. And those options include pain medicines like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, Another medication that's been researched is mesoprostol, which is a medication that's used to soften the cervix. And also there's been some research around local anaesthetic, and that can come in multiple forms, a gel, a spray, or as an injection. And there's a useful Cochrane systematic review from 2015, which summarizes a lot of the evidence around these different methods. And just to highlight a few different points from that review. So there's no evidence that misoprostol, the medication that I mentioned that softens the cervix, reduces pain. And also, most non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications do not seem to reduce pain. Stronger medications like tramadol and naproxen have some effect on reducing pain. And some local anaesthetics do. So that includes cream on the cervix, a 4% lidocaine gel. So that's a gel with a slightly higher percentage of anaesthetic in it and a lidocaine injection that's a local anaesthetic injection have some effect on reducing pain but it's important to note as well that some forms of anaesthetic or specifically the lidocaine injection that goes into the cervix can also cause pain themselves in terms of national guidance so the faculty of sexual and reproductive health they're the organization that governs what we do as contraceptive providers they issued a statement last year saying that all people should be offered pain relief during coil procedures. 
But the guidance doesn't specify which type of pain relief. So it doesn't say whether that should be tablets, anaesthetic gel, cream or injection. It just says that all people should be offered pain relief. And hopefully some of the discussion we've highlighted already kind of raises some of the issues around selecting an anaesthetic option. And beyond going for sedation or a general anaesthetic, which of course are valid options, for people who are awake during a core procedure, it's not really possible to predict which parts of the procedure they'll find painful, what level of pain they'll feel, or which anaesthetic option they benefit from. So that's why each and every time we fit a coil, it's so important that we counsel the person in front of us about that uncertainty and about the options that are available and make a plan together to pick a tailored pain relief strategy for that individual. In the UK paper, which looked at levels of pain, these researchers asked the clinicians fitting the coil to estimate the level of pain that their patient experienced. And what that showed is actually as clinicians, we underestimate patients' pain levels. Again, I think that is such a powerful reminder that we are not well-placed to make decisions about pain relief for our patients in isolation. Actually, we need to be making them in partnership. It's clear that there are significant problems with coil fitting, including a lack of guidance around what pain relief to offer and about who might feel pain. So I asked Netta to tell me more about the research she's currently leading on coil fitting and about what other gaps need to be filled. Right now, I'm leading a project exploring the experiences that people share about coil insertions on Twitter, actually. So just a bit of background to this. Last year in June, there were some really high profile stories about the coil, where journalists uh, Naga Manchetti and Caitlin Moran talked about their own personal experiences of pain during coil insertion. And the response across multiple platforms were huge. I was coming across hundreds of tweets from people sharing their own experiences in response. And that included people who had had coils inserted, but also healthcare professionals sharing their perspectives. And it prompted a real national conversation that had a huge impact on my specialty. It certainly prompted lots of discussion within my own department around how we manage pain. And on a national level, it led to a statement in response from our faculty, the Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Health. So my feeling really was that it's important for us to use this as an opportunity and understand what are people sharing in these tweets? You know, what is the nature of the strong reaction and the national public conversation? Uh, so for this research project, what we're doing is a thematic analysis of tweets that were shared in the days around those testimonials to understand the nature of the tweets and the experiences that were being shared online, really to see what lessons we can learn from them. And this project has been you know, really eye-opening. I've had the real privilege of reading through over 1,500 tweets and um, really looking forward to sharing the results and you know, see what lessons we can learn as coil fitters. One of the things that was a really dominant message in this set of tweets is that when people do experience severe pain during quill insertion, they feel misled and lied to by their counselling. Being told that most people have mild or moderate pain or that a little discomfort is the normal experience, you then feel totally abnormal if you have more pain than that and you feel deceived by your counselling. And a lot of people on Twitter highlighted this contradiction, you know, this mismatch between what their clinician had told them to expect and then what they actually experienced. It's impossible not to draw a connection between that sentiment and the study that I mentioned that found that as clinicians, we do tend to underestimate women's pain. And another key message that was actually really dominant in the tweets was the sense that women's voices were missing from the evidence, that they had not been asked about their experiences. 
And then when you look at the research, and yes, there are a number of systematic reviews looking at different types of pain relief, but actually there's virtually no research exploring what women experience in their counselling, what they experience in the procedure, or what their expectations or wishes are. And that is a real gap that needs to be filled. I suppose one of the main things that strikes me is we really don't have enough research here. You know, the things we've heard referred to seem it's a start, but compared to other areas, we really don't know. And also the kind of misinformation, I suppose, that is present in people having coil fittings is quite shocking. Mm. And just generally, I find pain a fascinating thing to study because we have all of these pain scales which somehow try to just break this down into a quantitative issue. But what also strikes me is the extent to which we need qualitative research as well. You know, I have a very high pain threshold, I'd say. And so it also makes me think my answer on a visual analog scale would be very different than someone else who's going through the exact same thing. So yeah, I'm fascinated to hear about this from both a personal and evidence-based perspective. Yeah, and also the fact that pain can be contextual, so pain in some areas might be worse than pain in some other areas exactly. and how do you predict that in advance yeah and as Nada explained the um, difficulty with coil fitting is that when a coil fitter meets a woman there's nothing to help them determine whether this woman will be somebody who experiences severe yeah. pain or not so yeah. that makes their job tricky and it makes pain counseling tricky as well because yeah. they can't say in advance who will feel severe pain exactly and i remember like so i myself had a c-section two c-sections both were planned and in the first one the anesthesia didn't particularly take which was fine because we figured that out but they were like you are very relaxed right now and i was like well i have a lifetime of experiencing pain through living with a chronic health condition so i don't tend to get too wound up about it right but that also made me think about if they're just looking for visual signs on my mm. face to tell them whether or not something is working, probably I am not giving away as much as maybe I could be in terms of that experience. Yeah. Yeah. But one of the things, especially in an area where we clearly don't have enough research and don't have enough research funding, I found it really interesting to hear about use of Twitter in this space because it seems to me that things like Twitter or even like online discussion forums could be potentially such a rich way of getting information for studies. It's free for us to access. Feels really, I don't know if easy is the word, but accessible for students, for example, who might be doing mm. projects where they don't have funding, they can't get ethics approval, they can't reimburse participants for their time. And I wonder about the strengths and limitations to these approaches. You know, one thing that I always think about when I look at experiences of people online is the chance that it's representative seems low. Certain voices of the population may be more likely to express experiences via these means and are there anything that you might say to researchers particularly maybe junior researchers who are thinking about making use of something like twitter or facebook or online blogs to help inform their research is there anything they should be mindful of absolutely and qualitative research using forums and online resources like that isn't new so yeah. researchers have been doing it for a very very long time so there is a precedent for this type of stuff twitter obviously is one of the relatively newer social media platforms in terms of the internet. It's not new at all. I appreciate that. <laughs> We're very old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
and um, yeah, so it's it's an interesting place. Obviously, the the main difficulties are around the amount of contextual information you can get because you can't really find out who has tweeted the thing that yeah. they've tweeted. So that's a bit of a problem because in qualitative research, context is key, and we need to know intricacies about this particular person before we can fully understand that. In saying that, what we can do is produce descriptive research to explain the types of things that people present on social media in relation to a phenomenon. And this research that Neda is leading, which I have had the pleasure of working with her on, along with a number of other colleagues, scraped the tweets about coil fitting around the time that several high profile figures in the media here in the UK talked about their own horrible experiences of coil fitting. So it was all based on that. And what we've ended up with is a good number of tweets, so several thousand of them that we have looked at and analysed in quite a rigorous way. So we developed a structured code book and analysed the data in light of that and then have developed some themes around the experiences of pain and and what needs to be done. So I think what you could say about Twitter or other types of social media platforms is they provide a quick way of accessing data about something but not comprehensive data. And of course, we'll acknowledge that as a limitation within this study. There are ethical issues. So students who are approaching this type of research should gain ethical approval because even though these things are publicly available, people aren't posting them with a view to them being used in research. Mm -hmm. So in the Twitter study, what Neda has been doing is contacting women who have tweeted that we would like to quote in the paper and asking their explicit permission to quote them. Interesting. So we've, and we have ethical approval for the study as well. So I think that's important. And ethics committees are familiar with this type of research, so it's not difficult to get the permission for it, so long as you've thought through all the issues that may affect your participants. Absolutely. And I suppose it just, whenever one's doing things like this, I always try and be mindful of the digital divide, right, in terms of who and does and does not have access to the internet and various technologies. And this is a not at all related to the topic of coil fitting, but we recently published a meta-analysis led by a colleague at Leicester looking at essentially what lockdown appeared to do to blood glucose levels in people living with diabetes. And the vast majority of studies found that, if anything, blood glucose improved during that period, but there were a couple clear outliers. And what we realized was the majority of the data we were getting were from people with continuous blood glucose monitors who had them hooked up to their clinic records via the internet and we're uploading their information and that that is not necessarily a representative sample of the population and in in the one really clear outlier they were collecting information in a different way and there you saw people who were struggling to access medical care and things got notably worse so it's always been really mindful I suppose when we get things off the internet or that rely on certain technologies that we are probably looking at on average a more privileged population mm-hmm. and very definitely a subset of the population exactly. as you say there is no doubt that intrauterine contraception is beneficial and historically all forms of contraception have been one of the key factors in liberating women through offering them reproductive choice and also a means of alleviating painful periods or menopausal symptoms. But the fact that women can experience extreme pain as a result of coil fitting definitely requires further research. As Neda explained, the research and guidance around pain and who might feel it and at what stage of the procedure it might be felt is lacking. She also highlighted research 
led by Hanat Akintomide from 2015, showing that doctors can't effectively assess coil fitting pain by observing women. This may be due to socially ingrained norms about women's high pain tolerance and implicit social rules around how and when women should express pain. Having spoken to Neda about all this, several things are clear to me. Doctors can't rely on their observations to determine how painful a procedure is, and women need to be made to feel comfortable in expressing their pain. More research is definitely needed into both patients' and doctors' experiences of coil fitting, and better evidence about who might experience pain and how to medicate it is also needed. Thanks to Jamie for discussing this with me, and to Neda for sharing her incredible clinical and academic expertise. And thank you for listening. For more information about our research, teaching, and postgraduate courses, please visit www.cbm.ox.ac.uk. Please subscribe to iTunes and stay tuned for our next episode.